invites us to think about armor from the very beginning. We're not merely told that a giant warrior from among the Philistines comes forward to challenge Israel. We're given full details on his armor. This isn't just some giant. This is an experienced warrior. And an experienced warrior with the best equipment available. David's challenge to the men of Israel who are around him must be understood in this context. Goliath is a man who is prepared for war. As Saul later says, a man who has known the ways of war from his youth. You need good armor for battle, and that's just good sense. You don't go into battle without proper equipment. Bad equipment can change the outcome of a battle. When World War I began, the Germans were all issued steel helmets. The British and the French did not begin with steel helmets. They weren't used to that yet. Considering the type of warfare they were to fight, where projectiles were constantly in the air, the steel helmets, though not perfect in their protection, were definitely helpful for survival rates. It only took a few months in the field for the French and later the British to begin issuing those steel helmets. The impression we get of Goliath is that he has the best military equipment available to a warrior from the 10th century BC. He has a helmet, a coat of mail, and bronze armor protecting his leg. The coat of mail was of the best technology available at that time. It was made of many small scales that were sewed into a leather jerkin so that one overlapped another. It would have had the effect of snake or fish scales. Weighed in pounds, it was about 125 pounds. The text especially notes the javelin, or actually the spear that Goliath carries. The shaft is like a weaver's beam, and the head is the weight of 600 shekels of iron, which is about 15 pounds. You can imagine that that would do some damage to your enemies. Besides, of course, the fact that he is nine and a half feet tall. This is incredibly frightening. Here's a man nine and a half feet tall plus heavily armored with top-notch equipment. You would be stupid to accept the challenge of such a man. You would be asking for death. Even if you are an experienced warrior, this man would just crush you. His armor is crafted with the best of worldly wisdom. David arrives on the scene to see the Israelite army cowed by the challenge of this warrior. He is challenging the army of Israel for a champion to fight in single combat. Now that practice of starting with some combat, a single combat fights, it was quite common. This was seen as a test among the people of who the gods favored or whose god was more powerful. And this helps us understand why David is so moved by Goliath's challenge to Israel. He's not only challenging Israel's strength, the strength of the individual men in that army. He's challenging Israel's God with the Philistines' God. This is why David responds to Goliath's challenge with such wonder. He asks, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? 
what shall be done? His question is incredulous on two levels. He sees the magnificence of, of what is offered to the warrior who takes on Goliath, married to the queen's daughter. No more taxes for the rest of your life. Against a man who is defying God's army? If a man killed Goliath, he would basically become a prince in Israel. This is a wonderful prize to the average Israelite. Why would you not make yourself strong in the Lord and take up such a prize? At a second level, he may wonder what King Saul, the former great champion of Israel, is doing. We were told earlier that Saul was head and shoulders taller than the average Israelite. It was he who freed Jabesh Gilead from a huge army of Ammonites. Why isn't this champion fighting Goliath? Now, it wasn't unheard of for, for the king to send out his own champion. Saul could have considered this type of fighting a young man's job. But why isn't the army under Saul taking inspiration from their great champion? We'll see later, under David's reign, there are many men who take inspiration from David, their champion, and become giant slayers themselves. There's, there's a contrast here between Saul and David. Another story that may play into David's wonder here is, is Israel's history in coming to the land of Canaan. In the wilderness, the men of Israel refused to spy out the land and refused to go in because of the giants. Here's another giant that is challenging the people of Israel. And like they were in the wilderness, they are cowed. It was David's ancestor, Caleb, who was one of the people to speak up against the Israelites who were ready to give up the promises that they had been given. How do we have the confidence of David? We don't have a promise that we will defeat our physical enemies in physical warfare like David does. However, we do have the promise that, that Christ, the conqueror, the one who conquered Satan, is with us. And he's promised to be with us in our struggle with the lies that gain prevalence in our own age. We don't need to be cowed by the expert's armor of the wisdom that comes from this earth. We don't need to be cowed by the wealth and the power that dress the enemies of the church today. Again, in part, this is a call to the young men of our congregation. Will you stand up and struggle to bring the giants of our age under the dominion of Jesus Christ? Saul was a shepherd who failed to do this. David begins his work of shepherding here. He is protecting the sheep from her enemies. It's the same call that shepherds have today to stand up against the enemies that cow the church from continuing in her calling in the mission of Jesus Christ. And again, I'll remind you, we do need to see the difference here. Israel's mission had a physical side that our mission does not have. We will not literally slay giants like David does. David does that because that is clearly David's mission. He's called to be king of Israel. Our boldness must be directed toward the mission of the church. But first, let's ask another question. 
Why did Saul fail in his task as a shepherd of Israel, as a guardian for the hosts of the living God? And that brings us to our next point, Saul's armor. The Proverbs say, the glory of the young man is his strength. The glory of the old man is his gray hair. The young man is quick to act, to become angry, to fight. The old man has experience. He has wisdom to provide to the young man. Ideally, the young man and the old man sharpen one another. The old man has the wisdom to direct the young man's strength toward what is useful. David's enthusiasm to defend the honor of Israel needs to be tested. Is it just a desire for his own glory, or does it come from a deep desire for God? His older brother calls him out, basically saying, you're just a kid who wanted to see the battle. And David ignores the comment. He knows his own heart. He is confident that he is doing this for the honor of God. Eliab's comment says more about himself, his own inability to fearlessly contest with this giant than David's pride. David's words bring him before the king himself. David announces that he will fight the giant for Saul. And Saul challenges him, him again. You are but a youth. Just a note here, a youth doesn't necessarily mean 15 or 16, David could have easily been in his early 20s. Saul says, you are but a youth, but he has been a man of war from his youth. David ably defends himself. I've defended my sheep from the bear and the lion, and the Philistine will be like the bear and the lion. Notice again the shepherd imagery here. The king is also known as a shepherd the officers of the church are known as shepherds, and they are to protect the church from the giants that threaten the church. Saul is willing to listen and offers David his armor. Is this the wise older man providing the younger man with what he needs to approach the enemy? It could look like that, and, and maybe Saul imagines that that's what he's doing for the young David. He is giving him a chance to fight against this Goliath. He is giving him his own armor, which, as a king of Israel, would be the best armor out there, the best equipment out there. We read the list. A helmet of bronze, a coat of mail, and a sword. But the armor doesn't fit. David tries to go in them, but they sit awkwardly on his body. Think about if you were trying to fit a backpacking pack to your body. Having only done it once, you need to get used to the feel. It needs to be molded to your body. It's the same with Saul's armor. Armor is, is heavy. You need, to get used to, you need to get used to walking about in it. Even today, Marines go with 60 to 100 pounds of gear strapped to their bodies. The armor is also made for Saul, a full-grown man, and David, who's shoulders have not necessarily filled out yet, fits uneasily in Saul's armor. But there's more, more going on here than just a bad fit. Saul is looking back at a life of failure. In many ways, the opposite of the failure that he is facing now. 
In the past, he has been overconfident in his own strength and his own wisdom. We can think of the action that lost him, the, the hope of dynasty, that is, a son to take his place as king of Israel. He was waiting for Samuel to sacrifice before he attacked the Philistines. He goes ahead and makes his own sacrifice. He does not obey God and wait. Later, the Lord completely rejects Saul when he, out of his own wisdom, chooses to preserve the Amalekite king and the Amalekite livestock. That is why this armor sends is another test for David. Will he go into battle trusting in his own strength and his own hand? Or will he wait on God? Will he fear the giant so much that he will rely on Saul's armor, Saul's way of kingship, in order to slay the giant? Maybe even now Saul is waiting for the return of the Spirit of God, which empowered his early days of kingship. The great army, armor that he shares with David becomes a symbol of his reliance on earthly wisdom. This type of dynamic can happen more often when an older generation can be overzealous. Perhaps overzealous is not the best word, rather impatient, overconfident in their own abilities or their own opinions. We could even add the problem of unconfessed sin in their lives. Later, when that is revealed, it can make them frozen in inaction when new giants challenge the people of God. That malaise is not limited to the leaders, but often spreads to the whole people, as we see here. But look, too, at God's mercy here. God does provide a new king. David prefigures our Lord Jesus Christ's work here, defending the garden of God against the giant dressed in scaly, serpent-like armor. Jesus doesn't dress like the serpent in order to defeat the serpent. He gives us a way in our fight against the serpent in him. If we look at the situation from an earthly point of view, there is something outside at work. God is empowering David. Brothers and sisters, we have our Lord Jesus Christ in his spirit. If we see ourselves in Saul, let us not merely accept that sad fate, as it seems that Saul did, but rather let us actively seek the Spirit so that we may regain some of that confidence in the mission of Jesus Christ. Let us truly repent of our sins and put them on his cross. Remember, that is what gives us fullness of life and the spirit of power which emboldens us in fighting the powers and principalities of this world. And even if we are unable to fully regain that confidence, sin does have its consequences on our flesh. Or a former position, it may be that if Saul had repented, he would have simply stepped aside to let David take the throne. Even if that is true, let us encourage the new generation to take up the firmness of David, that confidence we see in this young man as he takes on the monsters that attack the flock of his own day. And that brings us to our last point, David's armor. 
There are things that matter more than having the best armor. One of those is that you use it well. David has the wisdom to understand that his sling is a far more effective weapon for him than the armor that Saul offers. There's a wisdom here for us. Sometimes we need to, through faith, fight with the weapons God has given us personally rather than seeking after what is not useful to us. We also see in David a courage and a conviction of the right, a faith that he is doing the right thing because he trusts God's promises. This is deeply needed in any battle. Good equipment only does so much. A stout and courageous heart is deeply important for the day of battle. But there's a far more important armor that David needs as he goes into the battle against the Philistine. He needs to go out armored with the Lord's armor, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. We can see that armor make an appearance as David approaches the Philistine. He receives the Philistine's taunts with his own taunts. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. David surrounds himself with the Lord's strength. This is what enables him to walk into the field. No armor. Goliath could, through his spear with that 15-pound head, pulverize, obliterate David. But David comes in the name of the Lord. The courage of David, the wisdom of David in choosing his armor are both grounded in the faith of David. He sees a giant that mocks God's people. He knows that a thing like this cannot stand because the one who the giant is actually mocking is the Lord of this people. That is what gives David the confidence to stand And God rewards him for his confidence. He kills the giant with a stone and a sling and cuts off the giant's head with his own sword. This is written to give us assurance in in our war against the lies that control our own age. David lived by faith. In King Jesus, we also live by faith. Jesus, the ultimate giant slayer, the conqueror of the dragon. And Jesus shares his armor for our battle so that we too may be bold like David. And we are to have confidence particularly in the threats to those things that belong to the mission of the church. God wants the word to be preached, the sacraments to be administered, the psalms to be sung, the fellowship to increase. And God has promised to be with us in all of this. We must, of course, be careful in putting on our armor that we do not depend on the things of this world, particularly that we do not use lies and violence to defeat the kingdom of lies and violence. That's why Paul commends that we prepare with prayer. That's why we have multiple examples of strength through weakness. That is why we have examples of blessing in response to persecution. Because of Christ, we fight our battles in a different way than Joshua and David did. However, we need the same courage and the same boldness. Let me once again single out the young men here. God has particularly called 
men, as in males, to be the shepherds of his people because they are to be guardians of the bride of Christ. They are called to challenge the giants that mock the church. They are called to defend her. The church needs more guardians, more warriors to carry out the work of the kingdom of God. The glory of the young man is his strength, his willingness to put his hand to the struggle without turning back. Let me be clear. The church is not going to be advanced through political parties. And in saying this, I don't disparage those who labor for the church in those parties. The church will not be advanced through academics. And again, I don't disparage those who labor in academia. The church will be advanced through the continual work of the reconciliation of God through word, sacrament, and prayer. It doesn't look as obviously glorious as knocking down a giant with a sling and a stone. But in many ways, it's a greater glory. For as Paul says, however weak he and his colleagues might personally look, the kingdom of God doesn't consist in talk, but in power. A far greater power than David experienced. Or as he says later, the sufferings of this earth are not to be compared with the weight of glory we will have later on. I can't say what the future holds. All I can say is that God loves to put his people in lopsided situations that reflect the calling of his son. He is asking, who are you willing to trust? We should be willing to boldly act in God's name, provided, of course, that they are, that they are according to the promises of God. Let us always act so that we can with sincerity of heart say, I come in the name of the Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ, whom you have defied. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.